It was a call from, it was a woman's voice. Uh, the woman stated that she was Kathy Durst and that she would be absent from the clinical duties that she was assigned to. And I asked her why. And she said she had gastrointestinal distress, uh, some diarrhea. Now I would not mention cramps and a headache. It sounds far too menstrual. Some of the symptoms of a cocaine hangover include a headache. Right? Not usually. Usually people just are just tired. He rushed forward and kicked me in the eye. story of the hair two different ways. One way I drag her out of the house by her hair. The other way I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Either one is close enough. She was crying and I was trying to calm her down. And that she didn't want to go back inside. And that she was scared. And that's, that's what I can remember. Do you remember who she told you, if anyone, that she was scared of? Her husband. So Kathleen Durst had a black and blue and swollen left eye, is this correct? Around the eye, yes. You've seen a lot worse trauma inflicted on another person, haven't you? Yes, sir. Uh, particularly in uh, what you assume is domestic violence cases, you've seen a lot worse than this, right? Yes, sir. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This installment will present the latest updates from the last week of Durst's trial for the murder of his friend, Susan Berman. That's coming up right after the break. 19, after the prosecution and defense delivered abbreviated reopening statements, the jury began hearing from witnesses. So far, many of the witnesses have been asked to give testimony about what has become known simply as the phone call. Dr. Cooperman is yet another witness who you're going to hear from. He's going to explain to you that on Monday morning, there's evidence that he received a call between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m from someone who identified themselves as Kathy, saying that she had diarrhea and would not be making it to school that day. Now, telephone records from the Durst 37 Riverside Drive penthouse for that Monday do not show any such call. 
In his original opening statement back in 2020, Deputy DA John Lewin explained that this phone call to Dr. Albert Cooperman is a key detail in the case. Dr. Cooperman was the Dean of Education at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at the time of Kathy Durst's disappearance. Kathy was a student at the school and was about to begin a rotation in outpatient pediatrics on the day of her 1982 disappearance. Now, during the original investigation, Dr. Cooperman assumed, and the investigators accepted it, that in fact, it was Kathy he had spoken to on the phone. Now, the evidence is going to show that that was an absolutely incorrect assumption. Lewin intends to show that not only did Robert Durst kill Kathy on January 31st, 1982, but that he asked Susan Berman to help him cover it up. Years later, Lewin alleges, when Berman intimated that investigators wanted to discuss Kathy's disappearance with her, Durst was forced to, quote, tie up a loose end, end quote. Now, if Kathy didn't make the phone call to Dean Cooperman, who did? Well, we know who did. Because shortly after the call to Dean Cooperman was made, and multiple times over the years, Susan admitted to making that call or providing an alibi. She called Dean Cooperman pretending to be Kathy. Lewin's strategy is first to poke holes in the idea that Kathy or any actual medical student could have made the call. Now, the evidence is going to demonstrate that the reason that the dean was called was because Bob Durst did not know where Kathy was going to be that day. Did not know what hospital, did not know what rotation. Over the last 10 days, as doctor after doctor took the stand, including educators at the Einstein College of Medicine and former students from Kathy's graduating class, Lewin asked about the procedure for calling in sick to a rotation, and each witness said virtually the same thing. First, there was Dr. Sophie Balk. If a medical student was not going to come into work, who would they be responsible to call? They would be responsible to call their local supervisor or their local supervisor's office, and that would have been me. Then, Dr. Alicia Landman Reiner. You, you would call, if you could, someone on your team, like your, the resident on that team would be your immediate supervisor. Or if you couldn't reach them, the senior physician who was in charge of the rotation in that hospital. And Dr. Helen Block. You'd probably call the site director um, or the, the secretary who handled the rotation. Lewin then asked each of them. In your experience, would it be under the ordinary course of business for a student to, instead of calling you, calling a dean at the medical school? And here are their respective answers. That would not make sense. No, certainly not. Rotation? No. I would think that would be unusual. Lewin asked Kathy's fellow student, Dr. Paula Marcus. Knowing Kathy and as a, a young woman yourself at the time, do you believe that a young medical student would have called a male dean, an older male dean, and told him that she was unable to report to a rotation that he was not a part of because of a headache, diarrhea, and cramps? No. And can you tell me when you say no, why? First of all, cramps doesn't mean anything. You, know, you can have muscle cramps, you can have 
abdominal cramps, you can have cramps for menstrual period. Dr. Landman Reiner added. Now I would not mention cramps and a headache. It sounds far too menstrual. And the last thing you want to complain of is something to do with your menstrual periods because you are trying hard to prove that your your femaleness was an indifferent or possibly a positive, you know, attribute. And certainly you wouldn't you would never complain of period problems. With the prospect of 10 more doctors offering similar testimony, the defense acquiesced to a stipulated statement from those witnesses. Deputy District Attorney Habib Balian read the names of these doctors and then read the stipulation. Here are some of the key passages from that stipulation. If called, each of these doctors would testify to the following. It was extremely rare for a medical student to call in sick and the level of illness to do so would have had, had been extremely severe. If a medical student was going to be ill, they would have called someone on the service at the hospital rotation they were scheduled to work at and not a dean at the medical school. If a medical student were to call in sick to a dean, the witnesses would expect that the medical student would also have called into the rotation they were due to report to. If a medical student was going to call in sick to a rotation, they would do so well before the time that rotation was supposed to start. Calling in sick on the first day of a rotation was even more unprecedented. After the full stipulation was read to the jury, the prosecution presented a videotape of Dr. Cooperman's testimony that was recorded back in 2017 during the preliminary hearings of this trial. In answering Deputy DA Balian's questions, Dr. Cooperman remembers the phone call in this way. It was a call from, it was a woman's voice. Uh, the woman stated that she was Kathy Durst and that she would be absent from the clinical duties that she was assigned to. And I asked her why. And she said she had gastrointestinal distress, uh, some diarrhea, um, perhaps a headache was in there, I'm not sure. And for all those reasons, she didn't think it was possible uh, to come to, to that class. That was the first day of that particular uh, clerkship. Had you ever spoken with her on the telephone before? No. Had you ever heard her voice on a recording of any kind whatsoever before? No. So are, are you able to say based on the voice that it was or wasn't Kathy Durst? No. Why did you think it was Kathy Durst calling? She said she was Kathleen Durst. The defense contends that Kathy made the call herself, meaning, crucially, that she arrived in Manhattan the night before and was alive that day. Robert Durst's defense hinges on the notion that Robert Durst was not responsible for Kathy's disappearance and, therefore, did not have a motive for killing Susan Berman. While the defense has not offered an explanation for why Kathy Durst didn't report her absence to the hospital where she was scheduled to work, they have asserted that Dr. Cooperman was told to expect a call from Kathy during the first week in February. The audio of the cross-examination of Dr. Cooperman was recorded off of the courtroom TV monitor, so it can be somewhat difficult to hear. And Dr. Cooperman warned you before he took off the week of February the 1st, to be on the lookout for Kathy Durst calling in hell. 
You did alert me to, to that fact, yes. And um, you didn't alert you to any other student meeting? No. The actual, and again, this is a long time ago, I was very hard to recollect specific words. In my conversation with Dr. Cook, it seemed to me he was indicating she might call in uh, as being absent. Another theme in the testimony this week centered around Kathy's performance in medical school in the months prior to her disappearance. The defense paints Kathy as a cocaine addict, arguing that it was her alleged drug abuse that caused her to fall behind in school. However, few of the witnesses so far have supported that narrative. Were you aware that Kathy Durst was using cocaine in the last couple of years uh, of her uh, student? I was uh, not. Was cocaine generally uh, widely available in New York City I, I think in the that, early I think, 80s? I think it was available in the 80s. You know some of the symptoms of a cocaine hangover? Yes, as a physician, I do. Uh, can we leave that up, please? Some of the symptoms of a cocaine hangover include a headache, right? Not usually. Usually people are just are tired and they sleep a lot. And some of the symptoms of a cocaine hangover could be diarrhea. Not in my experience seeing people, but... Well, you're aware, of course, that cocaine was commonly cut or diluted with mannitol, aren't you? Yes, I am aware of that. And mannitol is a baby laxative, isn't it? It is. So have you had experience that uh, someone with cocaine hangover? I have not seen anybody with those symptoms in the emergency department in my experience. Or cramps? I have not seen anybody in my experience. Okay. But you're not saying it's not possible, are you? Many things are possible. My question is, you're not saying it's not possible, are you? Wait a minute, there are too many knots in that. <laughs> Can you rephrase the question, please? You're not saying that it's impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The prosecution alleges that Kathy's difficulty in school were only occasional and that she was in good standing and on track for graduation in the spring of 1982. They also argue that any difficulties that Kathy Durst did have resulted from the physical abuse she suffered at the hands of her husband. They have presented the testimony of several witnesses in support of this argument. John Lewin laid the foundation for Durst's capacity for violence and cruelty in testimony from Durst's brother, Thomas, in March of last year. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first, then I go into the revolving door, and from behind, like a sneak, 
he takes his full strength, and you can't think of him this way. He was strong in those days. He took his full strength, and he shoved the glass, and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street on my knees, and he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. An elderly gentleman had gotten into the, into the revolving door before me, I mean after me, and he also ended up on the floor, but he was on the floor inside the building, and he's shouting, idiots, idiots, like I had something to do with this. Bob is guffawing, Seymour is his usual self, walking away, who are these people, I don't know. And I'm, you know, I, I'm listening to my brother laugh at me, he's just holding his gut. It is so funny. Lewin further supported this idea with the recorded testimony of Peter Schwartz, a man who once attended a party at the Durst's apartment. He rushed forward and kicked me in the eye. I was sitting on the floor with my back against the computer. And when he rushed forward, even though I had my knees up, he kicked between my legs and between my arms and uh, kicked me under the right eye. Both at the start of the trial in 2020 and in the last week, Lewin has highlighted how, during their marriage, Kathy was often the target of Bob's violent impulses. In his original opening statement, Lewin presented Robert Durst's own words acknowledging his physical abuse. Oh, yeah, by, by, by 1981, her life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. He also presented Bob's account of pulling his wife by the hair from a family holiday party. After a number of years before I would go to her family's house for a function, I would insist that uh, we agree on how long we're gonna stay. Two hours, three hours, four hours, we would always do a negotiation. When the time was up, I was ready to leave. Seeing the story about the hair two different ways. One way, I drag her out of the house by her hair. The other way, I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Either one is close enough. Finally, Lewin presented testimony from witnesses to whom Kathy confided her fear of her husband's escalating violence. Last March, the Durst Manhattan neighbor, Ann Anderson Doyle, testified that Kathy came to her apartment seeking refuge after suffering a beating from Bob. Like I said, my image is that kid's story about the little matchstick girl that sits outside and looks in the window. It was looking in. in. It, was, it, was just, it was very sad. Um, you let her in? Yeah, yeah. And she wanted to go into the bathroom. There was no she way. wanted to sit in the bathroom, and we would have been in there for for a long time. How long would you estimate you sat with her in your bathroom? An hour or two. I'm I'm not sure, but she just didn't want to get out, go anywhere. And then um, my husband, my we weren't sure if you know she just had to calm down. And um, <clears throat> did you try to calm her down? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In general, what did you guys talk about in the bathroom that evening? That she was, she was crying, and I was trying to calm her down. Let me ask and you. that she didn't want to go back inside. 
and that she was scared and yeah that's that's what I can remember do you remember who she told you if anyone she was scared of her husband this week, in pre-recorded video testimony, the jury heard from Dr. Peter Wilk, in whom Kathy confided about the violent aspects of her divorce from her husband shortly before her disappearance. Again, the audio was recorded off of the courtroom TV monitor, so it can be somewhat difficult to hear. She was very emotional. She was shaking. She said that she was going through this. And it was a terrible thing. There were court proceedings, and there were lawyers, and there were therapists, and it was, her life was a mess. Did she tell you who um, was causing this unpleasantness? That's Habib Balian asking Dr. Wilk, did she tell you who was causing all this unpleasantness? Yes, she said it was her husband. She used the word that I've never heard you before. She said there was a homicidal side to him. She said there was a homicidal side to him. She mentioned one particular thing. She said that she'd been with a friend and that her husband had come in and he was in a foul mood and he attacked the friend and knocked him to the ground. He was kicking him and stepping on his head. Well, it was terrifying. She was... She was terribly traumatized. She said that, that she was sure that if she hadn't interfered, he would have killed the person. If she hadn't interfered, he would have killed the person. And finally, the jury heard from Dr. Kathy Hayne, the ER physician who treated Kathy for her injuries shortly before her disappearance. So Kathleen Durst had a black and blue and swollen left eye. Is this correct? Around the eye, yes. Is it fair to say in lame person's terms, Kathy Durst had a black eye? Yes. There was a cumulative impact to this evidence of Robert Durst's abusive behavior towards Kathy and others. Defense attorney Dick DeGuerin's tactic for countering that impact was to ask Dr. Hain the following questions. As an emergency room physician, you've seen a lot worse trauma inflicted on another person, haven't you? Yes, sir. Uh, particularly in uh, what you assume is domestic violence cases, you've seen a lot worse than this, right? Yes, sir. Those were the most significant developments in the first seven days of the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. We'll continue to keep you up to date on the latest developments and courtroom drama as the trial unfolds. Come back on Tuesday for our next regularly scheduled episode, when we will dig into all of these events in a roundtable discussion with reporter Charlie Bagley and my co-host Brittany Bookbinder. We will also present our third and final chapter in our series on the life of Durst's alleged victim, Susan Berman. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, 
If you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Post-production and editing were handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.